Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, I am Rachel Woody. I'm here on July 30th with Dr. Will Brown, and we are here at the Southern Oregon University's Hannon Library. And my first question for you is, why wine, or how did you get into wine? How did I get into wine? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a, <clears throat> that's a good question. It might take me a while to sure, explain sure. it. Uh, a very long time ago, uh, about 1953 or 4, no, about 1955, I was in medical school okay. in Cincinnati. And um, I had a professor who I worked for. This was in the Children's Hospital of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was, uh, he was a, a world authority in pediatrics, but he was also a great wine lover. Okay. And so he invited us over to his home for um, a Sunday sort of brunch, and, which was very nice because he was a very exalted faculty and I was just a lowly medical student. I was in about my second or third year. Okay. And uh, he served us wine. And I had had almost no experience with wine up to that point. I had some, but not. And this was in Ohio, you know, where wine was not very commonly consumed. Mm-hmm. So he had us for lunch, and his wife was a wonderful cook as well. And uh, he served us wine, and the, I remember the wines very, very distinctly. Uh, the first one was a rosé from Almaden, which you probably maybe haven't heard of. They, they were a big name in, in those days, but nowadays there's just sort of a bulk wine company. No, nobody pays much attention to them. And then he also served me a French wine. And he was a Francophile, and he, had, he spent a lot of time in France. He spoke French, and he imported his own wine from France directly to the U.S. So he, he um, served as a Vouvray, which is a, a, a Chenin Blanc from the Loire Valley. And then we had a wonderful meal. <laughs> so after we, after we left, I, I just got really interested in wine. And I started going to the Cincinnati Public Library, and I think that I might have read or at least looked at every book about wine in the whole Cincinnati Public Library, which wasn't very many books at that time, because wine was not not popular. But I learned a lot about wine from him, and uh, then I decided that um, when I finished medical school, I had to get to California, and so I did. I got to California, and uh, as soon as I could, which was in 1960, and I ended up in the Bay Area, okay. and. Uh, so I used to go visit the wineries a lot from the Bay Area. It was a short drive up to Napa, Sonoma, all the wineries. Mm-hmm. And then an interesting thing happened in 63. I went to a, I think it was 63, I went to a uh, wine tasting, a large wine tasting, which again was unusual in those days. 
this was a very large one, and, and they had quite a few California wine, wineries there that were repre represented. And uh, when, I, when I left this tasting, I went out to my car, and the car right next door to me, uh, there were two guys, and they were putting cases in the, in the back. And I was so curious, I went up to them and I said, hey, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, we're getting bottles from, and we're taking these empty bottles home. I said, what for? And he said, oh, we're home winemakers. And so it turned out they lived in Berkeley, which is right where we were, right in the Berkeley area in East Bay. And uh, so I said, hey, I'd like to come up and see your operation. So I did. And I was just blown away by what they were doing. Well, uh, subsequent to that, uh, the guy that I had been talking to, he ended up being the winemaker for a major California winery. He was a brilliant guy. He had a PhD in chemistry and all this. He worked for mm -hmm. Shell. And uh, at that point, I decided to make wine myself. So I, uh, I started out as a home winemaker, and I went up to Davis, and I took uh, class in Davis probably for a week. It was either one week or two weeks, every day, all day. And the, the man who taught the class was Maynard Amarine. That name might not mean anything to you, but in the history of wine in California, especially at UC Davis, he's probably the biggest name in, the, in that history. Uh, and he taught the class and I started making wine at home. So I made wine at home for about six or eight years, and then I got tired of it, and I, I quit, and I moved up here to Oregon in '79. So uh, and I brought my stuff with me, but um, and I didn't do anything at all with winemaking at home. Although in the meantime, I had gotten into collecting wine. And, and putting on tastings. So for quite a few years, I collected wine and uh, had a fairly large cellar. I moved, when I moved up here, I brought about 700 bottles of wine. That's not a huge cellar, but it's big enough. Yeah, and then I, uh, I, I also started a wine tasting group up here, which went for several years. And uh, so, you, that at least that brings us up to the time here, and then you may have more questions, and I'll go on with it. All right. What brought you to Oregon? Well, um, mainly I wanted to get out of California. Uh, it, we lived in the Bay Area and in the East Bay, and it was so congested there and crowded. Um, everything was congested. I mean, you went to every, everywhere you went, you had to wait. Uh, freeways were congested, everything was congested. And I'd always uh, liked the idea of Oregon. But I'll have to tell you uh, more specifically uh, what prompted me to move to Oregon. This was in 1963, I believe. No, it could have been later. It was probably more like 1967. I think that's when it was. I was working, I was an obstetrician, gynecologist, and I was working at uh, Kaiser Hospital in Walnut Creek. And one night I was on call. We had to take call about once a week. And I was on call and this a couple came in to have a baby. She was in labor. 
Well, it turned out it was Dick Ebrath. Yeah, and so um, we got to talking about wine. I, I don't know how, because I, I didn't know him and he didn't know me, other than I was the doctor and he was, his wife was the patient. So, but we got onto wine, and it turned out that he lived in Walnut Creek, mm -hmm. and he had a small vineyard in Walnut Creek. And uh, he told me that he was going to move to Oregon. And I said, oh, you know, I said, you're crazy. I said, you, you can't go to Oregon and make wine, grow grapes and make wine. It's too cold. It rains all the time. You can't do that. He said, oh, no. He said, I've got some wine at home that I, that I made from grapes that grew in Oregon. Well, it turned out that, that Dick, and you may know the story already, Dick had been to a class at Davis, and he met Richard Summer there. And Richard to, uh, told Dick his story, and he said, why don't you come and get, uh, I'm paraphrasing, why don't you come and I'll give you or sell you some grapes, and you can take them back and make some wine. So. Dick got some Riesling from Richard, and he made this wine. So he said, I want you to taste this wine. So a, a, a week or two later, after the delivery, um, I went to Dick's house, because I lived nearby. I think I, at that time I was living in Walnut Creek. And I went over to Dick's house and um, tasted the wine. It was wonderful. It was a Riesling, a dry uh, Riesling. It was really good. So. Um, about, I don't know, within a month or two, Dick left and he went to Oregon. And of course, you know the story. I'm sure you've read the story. If you've read the, bo the book, Boys The Boys Up North. North, you know the story. And, and so over the years, I have kept in touch with Dick. Not a lot, but just enough that he always knew he, he always remembered me. I mean, there was never a question about that. And, and every couple of years, I would go up there and I'd, I'd see him or I'd see him at a meeting or this or that. So uh, when it came time for me, I wanted to get out of California. And I thought, boy, Oregon is the place to go. And I came up around some, somewhere around, I don't know, mid-70s. And I toured all over Oregon to, to see if I could find a place that I would be happy with. And I ended up in Ashland, and uh, I also needed to make a living, you know. So I, I found that Ashland was a town of 18,000 or 20,000, that there was no gynecologist here, oh. and no OB. There was OB, but it was being done by general practitioners. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I, and I loved Ashland. I mean, it's a beautiful town, and, and it, it reminded me a lot of California. Ashland's very California-like, and there are a lot of California people who live in Ashland, so it wasn't much of a transition to come from California, Bay Area, to Ashland. It's much more of a transition to go to McMinnville or, or the Northern Oregon, mm. because that's a lot more like someplace else, you know. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so Dick, I don't know that Dick even knows this, but, but uh, Dick was kind of instrumental in me coming to Oregon. And, uh, and I, I'm still in touch with him. He's a, my friend on Facebook. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Wonderful. So, yeah. so. Yes, Dick Erath is actually the one that made sure that we had your name on this list for the project. 
and so he's definitely. Yeah, I, I kind of figured fun. that, yeah, yeah, because he knows my interest in, uh, and I've interviewed him, you know, for, I've done an interview with Dick, not really an oral history, but an interview, mm -hmm. yeah. And I've corresponded with him, we're, we're on uh, emails, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. So when you came to Ashland, you reestablished your practice, did you, when did you start getting back into wine? And I believe you also made in one. 19, uh, 1999, I'm, yeah, I think it was 99. Okay. Um, I got a call from a man, a, a lawyer that I knew, a retired lawyer. And he told me, and he lived over on the other side of the freeway. And he told me that um, he and and two other uh, people, who were, both of whom were retired physicians, were going to uh, make wine at home. And he wanted to know if I would be interested in joining them. I didn't know these people very well, but I did know them. I had met them fairly uh, re uh, recently. So I said, oh, sure. I said, did you know that I used to make wine at home? And he said, no, I didn't know that. So, so we started making uh, wine, home wine mm -hmm. in 1999 over there in, in, a, in a home, in a garage at, uh, on the other side of the freeway. Well, uh, over, I, I, we did that for, let's see, 2001. Uh, I did that for three years with them. I always call them the boys. Uh, there were th four of us, and there were three doctors and, and this attorney, and we were all retired. So we started making wine, and it all started coming back to me, you know, mm -hmm. how to make wine properly. And uh, then uh, I, in about 2002, I decided that um, I'd gone as far as I could with home winemaking. Uh, there are a lot of drawbacks to home winemaking. You can make good wine, but there are always technical problems that you can't cope with in a home winemaking, unless you spend a lot of money to buy really decent equipment and, and set it up right, you know, set up your, your, your little wine space for it with lots of water, lots of hot water, and uh, so I, I decided that I'd like to get in, somehow get involved in professional winemaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I contacted uh, Sarah Powell. And uh, Sarah, I had known Sarah Powell. I had met her a number of times. So I contacted, uh, I contacted Sarah and I asked her if I could come and work with her. She was the winemaker at Forest at that time, Forest Winery in, in, uh, out in the uh, uh, Illinois Valley. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I'm, I'm moving. I'm, I'm leaving Forest and I'm going to open uh, uh, the winery, um, a new winery in Medford. It didn't have a name at that time. It turned out it's Roxy Ann. But uh, so she was the initial winemaker at Roxy Ann and she was also the one who did all the set up work at Roxy and she bought all the equipment, she did, helped design the winery, she did everything there. Mm -hmm. So she said, I, she, she was overjoyed that somebody wanted to come and work, uh, work with, with her. 
And uh, by, by, I should tell you that by this time I was retired from medicine. I retired, I think, around 97 or 98. Okay. I got out completely. And uh, so she was happy to have me come and work with her. So uh, I went over, uh, the first day I went over to, the, to see the winery and to see her and see the setup over there it would have been uh, right around the 1st of September of 2002. And I met Jack Day, who was the owner, uh, and still is, the owner of Roxy Ann. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jack said, <laughs> this is a funny little vignette, that Jack said, um, well, he said, have you met Jack? No. I have not. Okay. Uh, he said, uh, we're not, he said, you can't come and, and work here uh, without being paid. He said, uh, the uh, workman's comp. You, we have to have workman's comp on you in case there's an injury or an accident, uh, you'll be covered. And so he said, would you be okay with accepting minimum wage? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I said, sure, I was going to do it for nothing, you know. So minimum wage was more than, than nothing and I figured it would, you know, buy me something and it eventually did. So I went to work for minimum wage and uh, for the first year of, of what became Roxy Ann. It wasn't Roxy Ann at that time. I can't remember what we called it, uh, Hillcrest, I guess, but Hillcrest is already a name that, we, it, it, this was in the Hillcrest Orchard in Medford. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Well, we couldn't, we couldn't name it Hillcrest because Hillcrest was Richard Summer. Mm -hmm. So we had to get another name. Well, the mountain right behind the vineyard, right at the, we were right at the foot of this mountain was called Roxy Ann Peak. So that's why, why we decided to call the, the winery Roxy Ann. So I worked the first harvest there and uh, I worked with uh, Sarah and I worked with Gus Janeway and I worked with uh, um, Rachel Martin. And Rachel was just learning. Rachel uh, was a young woman and she was about 30, I think, at that time. Yeah, that's about right. Um, she wanted to learn the wine business. And so she came to apprentice under, under Sarah. So she was kind of like an apprentice. And I, I, we were both cellar rats. That's what we were, both of us. We did all the dirty work. We did all the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. We did every, Sarah did very little except, you know, this. Mm -hmm. And Sarah was good. She was really good. She was a very good winemaker and had a good reputation. Everybody knew her. So, um, so that's how I got started. In, that's how I got started in professional winemaking. And meanwhile, I started taking classes at Davis by uh, uh, a distance learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had taken, I took one or two in the early 2000s. Um, I took one on introduction to wine, then I took one on winemaking. And they were long classes. I mean, these were classes that went on for a whole quarter, you know, 10 weeks. And, and we, would, we had to take exams and everything. It was just like taking it at, you know, distance right. education is essentially the same thing as taking a class at the college or university. So, um, so then um, 
So I, uh, right around, I don't know, 2003, 2004, Davis decided to make winemaking a certificate program. And so they required four, no, five classes, all, each one a quarter long. So I completed that, that uh, series of classes by 2006. So it took about five years. To, and part of that was because they, did, they only offered classes at certain times, you know, I could only take it when it was being offered. So I ended up with a certificate in winemaking from Davis, and I, I was in the first cohort that went through the program. So they, they really treated us very well at Davis. Davis is a wonderful place. I love Davis. I love the town and I love the university there and the winemaking department. It was really a good experience. So, uh, well, I'm jumping way ahead. You probably want to drop back. Maybe I'll fall back and, and go back to 1999. Okay. And tell you that um, I didn't know what I was going to do when I retired from um, medicine. Mm -hmm. I had sort of retired once before, in, like in the mid-90s. It didn't work. It didn't work at all. I was retired for few months and I didn't know what to do with myself and, and I was old enough to retire I was like 65 but I just didn't have anything to do so I decided the next time I retired I was going to find something to do so I after I thought about it I, I decided that I would like to research the history of wine in southern Oregon or in the Rogue Valley particularly the Rogue Valley and uh, so I called the professor of history, one of the professors of history, and I knew that he was giving a class in how to write, how to, he was giving a class for undergraduates on how to do history. Okay. How to, you know, it was really historiography was what it was. They didn't call it that, but that's what it was. It was how to, how to write history. And he was happy to have me because uh, he thought it was a real kick, you know, to have an old person in the class who wanted to write on a very specific topic. Mm -hmm. So I wrote, uh, in that class we had to write a term paper. So I, that was the first paper that I wrote. I wrote that paper uh, on the history of wine in the Rogue Valley from the very beginning up until just after the turn of the century. And then, that was in the spring, and then I was really, uh, jazzed about that because I got an A in the class and so I, I he was giving another class in the fall it was a more advanced class and it, actually it was a, a class for history majors who were going to write a terminal paper mm -hmm. so I went from the beginning of beginning class and writing history to the terminal class without anything in between but it worked out just fine I wrote another paper on the history of wine in the Rogue Valley from about 1900 to about 1970, which was a de dead period. There wasn't really anything going on, but I managed to find enough things to write about uh, that I wrote another paper. Then, um, let's see, that was still 1999, and that was about the time that, that I started making wine at home. And so by the year, and then in 2003, I took another class in history. So that was three, 
No, uh, let me back up a little bit. In 2001, I took the class in oral history, and I, I interviewed for the term paper in that class. I had to do a complete oral history, and I did that on one of the wine growers in the area, a guy named Dunbar Carpenter. Mm -hmm. uh, he was, he's a big name in the, in the Rogue Valley, mostly in the pear business, not in the wine business, but I interviewed him. And then in 2003, I took another class uh, in history, and it was on the history of, um, it was either the history of Jackson County or the history of Southern Oregon. I think it was the history of Southern Oregon. And I wrote the third paper. And then, again, then about a year later, I took another class, not in history, but in uh, climatology from Greg Jones. Oh, okay. And I wrote a paper on, um, Sangiovese, whether it was uh, a, a grape that would be uh, suitable in the Rogue Valley, and I came to the conclusion that it was. Well, nobody ever read the paper, but none of these were ever published. But now Sangiovese's grown in the Rogue Valley by, I don't know, half a dozen growers or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so, so I wrote all those papers, and uh, none of them were ever published. In the meantime, I was getting into professional winemaking. And in 2006, when I finished the uh, program at Davis and I had the certificate, uh, I, by that time I hadn't done much more in the history because I was so involved in, in uh, winemaking. And I, just like that, I got a job as a winemaker, as a pr prime wine, primary winemaker. This was at Agate Ridge out in uh, Eagle, in Eagle Point. Uh, they were a startup, and Linda Donovan had been the winemaker there, and Linda left, and uh, they were on very short notice. I started there on August 1st, I think, and we crushed the first grapes on August 31st, so I had a month to orient. And so I stayed there two years as the winemaker. And it was great experience, but I finally uh, left there, not because I didn't like it, but because it was a lot of work, a lot, it was a lot of hard work. I had a great assistant a guy that helped me, my cellar rat. I called him my cellar master, but uh, and he was a great help. And, and that's how I got through the two years. But physically, it was very hard on me. So I just, I left after two years, but I'm still in contact out there. It's still uh, one of my favorite wineries is Agate Ridge. So. What was the name of your cellar master? Uh, Sherman Lamb. Sherman Lamb. Yeah, and Sherman, ironically, was a guy, Sherman had owned a, at that time, he owned a vineyard in Talent, a fairly major one, uh, like 20 or 25 acres. Mm -hmm. And Sherman was the one who had originally introduced me to Ted Gerber at Forrest and to Sarah Powell. And, and so when I took the job at Agate Ridge, Sherman came, we had dinner, Sherman and I had dinner because we were close friends. And he said, I'd like to come and work with you at Agate Ridge and learn to make wine. So he did. And he stayed for two years and then they had to let him go because they were having financial problems and they couldn't afford have two people being, being the winemaker, even though I told her when I went there that I didn't want to work full-time. I would only work part-time. That was fine with her, mm -hmm. the, the owner, Kim Kinderman. And uh, 
So uh, when Sherman and I were working there, I was working just a little over half time probably, and Sherman was working about the same. So we added up to one person. But I, I think there were other problems that, that I won't go into at this yeah. with, uh, between Sherman and Kim. Um, in any case, Sherman, unfortunately, he, and then he went through the program at Davis. Hmm. And unfortunately, he never, he's never gotten a job in the wine industry. He's still not in the wine industry. So I don't know what he, where that's going to go, but mm -hmm. uh, he's still a friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you started at Agate Ridge, was that 2004? And what? At Agate Ridge, what year did you start? Say, 06. And I did the vintage of 06 and 07. And then uh, Kylie Evans, who had been the winemaker at um, Abacella, mm -hmm. came after me. Actually, there's been quite a, a line of good winemakers out there. The first winemaker was Linda Donovan. You, have you met her? You know about her? I know her by name. Well, Linda, Linda is a person that you'll probably have to end up talking to. Okay. Linda, Linda, right now, Linda's a pretty big name in Southern Oregon. Is she related to Michael Donovan or not? Is what? Is she related to Michael? No, no. not at all. Okay. No. No relation. And then following me uh, was Kylie Evans, who made fame at Abacella. And then mm -hmm. following him, he lasted about three years. And then the, the, the person that's up there now was a fairly major name in California. Mm -hmm. And he's the winemaker at Agate Ridge now. So they've had... Uh, well, I'm not counting myself, I'm counting the other people. Okay. But I, I actually ended up making some, pretty, some fairly decent wine. I, we got a lot of medals for some of the wines that I, that I made. So, and I didn't make any really bad ones. So I, <laughs> so I was happy right. with that. Yeah. So. One of the names that you've brought up, Sarah Powell, mm -hmm. in our research here, we've learned that she's quite a prominent figure that unfortunately yeah. passed away too soon. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about her and, and how she came into the wine industry and, and what her impact was? Well, um, I didn't know Sarah Powell until about uh, the late 90s. Mm -hmm. And I met her through Sherman Lamb, as I mentioned, who had that vineyard. and. Uh, she was the winemaker at Forest and had been there, I think, seven or eight or nine years at Forest. She came, she graduated from UC Davis uh, in the early 80s, I believe. Uh, she was from Washington State, which is where her fa father and her, her uh, stepmother live. Mm -hmm. And um, Sarah had a kind of an interesting background. She had, I can't remember at all, she, she was going to college when she discovered wine and then she decided to transfer off to Davis. I'm not sure where she was going before. Oh, I know, it was University of Washington. I'm pretty certain oh. it was UW. And she, decided, she became interested in wine and she decided to transfer to Davis which she did, and she graduated at Davis. I'm sure that there are a lot of very well-known people in California t today that were in her class. Mm -hmm. Because everybody who graduated from Davis in those days became a big name in California. That was when the industry was growing very rapidly. So Sarah um, 
After she finished at Davis, she went to Washington, and she worked in Washington for a few years at a couple of large wineries. I think Hogue was one of them. And uh, then, somehow or another, she made the connection and came down here to work for Ted Gerber at Forrest. And um, Sarah was um, not the easiest person to get along with. And I, I think that she and Ted started butting heads before too many years went by. Because Sarah, Sarah's attitude was, it's my way or the highway. And, and her way was fine, you know, I mean, she made good wine and she knew how to make wine. And so her way or the highway worked for her, you know, and it was that operation was not that big in those days. And Sarah um, had a few people help, helping her and Ted sort of stayed out of the winemaking part of it. He was the vineyard guy. And uh, but by the, by the late 90s, in 98 or 99, Sarah began to want to have her own label. And uh, so she did. She established the label Sarah Powell Wines. And uh, she, the first year that she made it, I think was either 97 or 98, she made wine under her own label. But um, I don't think Ted wanted her to make it at Flores. So she ended up having to make it up north. She went up there and she was like commuting up north during the time that she's making this wine. She made Syrah. And the Syrah she made was from the grapes that Sherman Lamb sold her from okay. Sherman's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so she got the label started. And then uh, when she started at Roxy Ann, Jack allowed her to make her label at Roxy Ann, so she was able to make Sarah Powell wine along with Roxy Ann wine. And the wine is still being made today, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so Rachel and I, and I, I'll mention Rachel probably quite a bit because she's a very close friend. And I'm, I'm, still, I'm still working, believe it or not. I'm a consultant at her winery. She has a, her own winery now. It's called Red Lily. Okay. And uh, I consult with her not very much and not very, uh, not in great depth. But, but we're friends and we, she relies on me to kind of bounce her ideas off of me. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the extent of my consulting with, with uh, Sarah or with uh, Rachel. Anyway, in the spring of 2003, Rachel and I were still trying to decide whether we wanted to do another harvest with Sarah. Because, as I said, Sarah was difficult. She was not the easiest person to get along with. And, and oh, and Sarah was totally um, not so interested in what anybody else's life was like. She, she was single, didn't have any children, and she, she just operated on Sarah time, you know. Well, Sarah time was totally different than sort of uh, standard time. And Rachel had kids, and I had a wife who had just had a huge operation for breast cancer, both, both sides. And uh, she, was just she was still recovering. And so I was trying to decide whether I wanted to go back and work with Sarah again, and so was Rachel. Well, uh, about, long about June of 2003, Sarah um, 
Sarah told me, I was still working a little bit up there. I mostly worked the harvest and not the off season. Sarah told me that she was not feeling well, that she was, she had this chest congestion and she was just not doing well. So, but she said, I, I can't get in to see a doctor. So I said, no, not to worry, I'll get you in. And so I did, I got her in with a doctor here in Ashland. So he told her that she had bronchitis or something, chronic bronchitis, and he started her on antibiotics. She didn't get any better. So after uh, a short time, a couple of weeks maybe, or a month at the most, he, what did he do next? Oh, he got a chest x-ray. Well, he, he might have gotten that early in the game, but he didn't. In any case, he finally got a chest x-ray and it showed a mass in the chest. She had lung cancer. And uh, it was the kind that, that people get who don't smoke. Oh. It was not due to smoking. She had never smoked in her life. It was either due to some environmental uh, uh, component right. or um, it could have been, I don't think it was secondhand smoke. I, I just don't know. Nobody knows. But it was a different kind of cancer, the kind that, that you don't get from smoking. Well, it was really bad news. And uh, she decided at that point, she went to see some local uh, oncologists. And they told her that it was pretty hopeless. And uh, they sent her up to uh, Seattle for treatment. And she went through treatment up there. I think she had chemo and uh, radiation. I don't think she had surgery. I'm pretty sure she did not have surgery. And then she decided to go and live with her father, who lived in Spokane, which was you know, clear on the other side of Washington. So she went to Spokane and uh, she died in February of 2004. We didn't, we, during the harvest of 2003, it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting at that time because Sarah, even though Sarah was in Spokane and, and Rachel and I and Gus Janeway were making the wine, Rachel and I were, were still cellar rats although we had moved up a little, we were sort of super cellar rats by that time. Mm -hmm. And Gus Janeway was making the wine. Gus had been working, working there uh, the first year. And uh, Gus has his own label called Velocity Cellars. But Gus was working just on salary or on contract with Roxy Ann. So, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, Gus is a really nice guy, so Rachel and I didn't have any problem going back and working with Gus because we liked him a lot mm -hmm. and he liked us and so we made a good team because we had all been there the previous year we knew what, we knew how to do it, you know. Well, Rachel or uh, Sarah kept calling day in and day out. She kept calling, mm -hmm. have you done this, have you done that, do this, do that. She wanted to make the wine herself by phone. Well, we didn't really go for that. And finally, we had to kind of stop taking her calls, which was sort of rude, but, but we didn't have much choice. She was, she was taking up a lot of time. She'd get on the phone with Gus and talk for 45 minutes. You know, in the middle of harvest, it doesn't make any sense. 
So um, that kind of that that was kind of the end of Sarah. And after that, after that harvest, she didn't bother us anymore. And then she died in the, in the fall. Well, after she died, I, maybe I was feeling guilty, but uh, I felt that somehow there should be a tribute paid to her for her work and for her, her status in the industry. So I got this idea of starting a uh, fund. And um, I had, uh, maybe Mary Jane told you this, but when I, when I, I'll back up just a little and tell you that I had uh, done my research in the library for my, the paper, all papers I wrote, and I found the, the wine library here somewhat wanting. It wasn't very large. You know, a couple hundred books was all. And uh, somewhere, and I can't remember exactly when it was, it must have been around 2001 or two, uh, I, I became aware of um, a collection that was available for sale of wine books in California. And this was through um, the Wayward Tendrils. Are you have you ever heard of the Wayward Tendrils? No. You ought to. You you should you should get you should go to their website. Wayward Tendrils is a quarterly journal for lovers of wine books, and it's run entirely by Gail Unzelman, and and. Uh, it's been going on for a long time, like 20 years or more. And I was a member of Wayward Tendrils because I had a moderately large collection myself of wine books, maybe a couple hundred by that time. So um, <clears throat> anyway, I decided that this wine collection was, it was a collection by a well-known person, a wine writer. And, and I think he was a winemaker too, but he was a wine writer. He was better known, I think, as a wine writer. Bern Ramey was his name. So I, I got, anyway, I came and, and talked to the people here. I thought maybe they would buy it, they'd buy the collection. No, wrong. You know, they didn't have the money. They didn't have any money to buy the collection. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, what if I bought it and gave it to you? And they said, oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. So I did. I bought the collection. And there was about 560 or 70 books in the collection, some of which they already had, but it was a big collection. And it was a good collection, too. They were good wine books. So I even went, drove down and got it. It was down in Santa Rosa, California. I went down there and got it and brought it back and gave it to the library. And um, so then, a year or two later, uh, a, a friend of mine died. And he lived locally, and he was kind of a wine nerd. He had been a collector, and he had a, he had a lot of wine books himself. He had something like 200 wine books. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody knew about what he had except me. Mm -hmm. So um, I and and the executor of his estate was a friend of mine. So I said, I'm going to buy all those wine books. So I did. I got them for you know like 10 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. I bought about another 200 books of wine and, and gave it to the library. And I had also given about 150 or more of my own books to the library. Right. So now we have over a thousand books here on wine in this library. Mm -hmm. And well, anyway, back to, to back up, I started what we called the Sarah Powell Tribute Fund. 
and that was uh, a fund to buy books for the uh, for the library here. I thought that would be a good tribute to her to have a wine library with books that had her name in it you know, on the frontispiece. Right. Yeah. So um, so that's what I did, and I managed to raise without too much difficulty, about $10,000. It was mostly from people in the industry. There were a few people outside who donated, but it was mostly people in the industry. And then over time, I was able to get some more money from the industry, from the Oregon Wine Growers Association, right. and from the Southern Oregon Wine Makers, S-O-W-A. Mm -hmm. I was able to get some money from them, but very grudgingly. They didn't give it very willingly, but I got, I, I probably got about 2,000 altogether from them. Well, it's kind of faded now, and, and we've spent all that money on tech, on books, you know, wine books. So, so we have a lot of newer books in the, in the collection as well as, uh, and I try to keep up with it. I don't, I still donate money usually in December for tax purposes mm -hmm. to the library to get more books. And Mary Jane has always been my contact person. Mm -hmm. I've always worked with Mary Jane. So, so anyway, uh, we have the Sarah Powell Tribute Fund. It's still active and it's still being contributed to. When I give any money, I give it to that fund. Otherwise, if it went to the foundation, bye-bye. Yeah. So um, it's helped a lot with, uh, with, with that. And uh, so that sort of brings me up to, sort of up to date. You, I'm sure you have other questions. I, I keep jumping around. That always no, happens right. in oral history. The, <laughs> right. the, the, uh, per, the historian always jumps around because one thing leads to another. Right, you follow the story. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, while we're talking about the library, I know that you have already, or you plan to donate your papers to Southern Oregon University. Could you tell us a little bit about what those are, and do those include your articles that you wrote? Um, as a part of, yeah, I, well, I wrote those five papers, mm -hmm. uh, including the one on climatology and Sangiovese. Mm -hmm. The other four are historical papers, and uh, they've never been published. They haven't even really been edited, uh, I, you know, except by me, and handed them in. And I received a grade, and uh, the professor was very. Professors were very happy with it, but they weren't uh, publishing grade. You know, they they needed to be revised. But as I told you, I got involved in in the winemaking part of mm -hmm. it, and I just didn't have the energy to do that as well. So now that I'm retired, I have. I have more time. I don't know if I have any more energy, probably not, but I have more time to think about what, what should I do or what could I do. Mm -hmm. um, so I have those five papers, and I think that even though they're unpublished, they, they'd be a valuable addition. They, they, they all have fairly lengthy bibliographies, or, and for citations and bibliographies. So anybody doing research in the future would find them very handy, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it would save them a lot of time, as you know, as a librarian. They wouldn't have to go through yeah. the whole library to find, the, you know, articles. The right books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I intend to donate those. I, I also would like to get back into doing 
uh, research. I'm, I don't want to get too far into it. Oh, I'll tell you another thing, uh, because it's pertinent. A few years ago, this would have been about 2009, eight, 2008, I think, Greg Jones contacted me. And Greg's a, a good friend of mine. Uh, he, he called me and he told me that, that he was planning to write a book. And it was, he, he, it was actually not his idea. The book had been started by another person by a, a guy, I can't remember his name, it was a, he was a geologist and he had taught at, uh, he had been an industry geologist and then I think when he retired he moved to Oregon and I think he lived in Corvallis and I think he was um, teaching maybe as an adjunct or a lower level, uh, teaching geology at Oregon State. Well he wanted to write a book on a terroir of Oregon wine. So he started writing it and uh, he got relatively far along with it I think, far enough that it was almost a book at that point. But uh, he, was, he was killed in an automobile accident. Oh. Yeah, and so th this book was underway and I think there was an agreement with the Oregon State University Press to publish it. Well they contacted Greg and they asked Greg if, if he would finish the book, even though Greg's not a geologist, but he's had geology in his training. Mm -hmm. And Greg, of course, as you well know, is one of the best known names in the wine scene in Oregon. And so Greg said that he would try to finish it, the book. Well, so he took it on and uh, he, so he called me and we had lunch and he asked me if I would be willing to write uh, or re do research on the history part because he wanted to have an introductory chapter that would that would cover the essentials of the history mm -hmm. in Oregon. So I said, okay, that was great. I, I was very happy to do that. So I started working on that and uh, I worked on it at the end of 2008 and then into 2009 and I, I spent uh, a number of days up in the valley and I talked to people that I knew up there which weren't very many, Dick Erath, you know, and a few other people that I knew from somehow or another. Mm -hmm. Well, I did, I did, again, I wrote, I didn't really write a paper, I, I sort of wrote my thoughts. Part of it sounds like it's part of a paper, but the, some of it's just my ideas, you know. I wanted to get my ideas down on paper. Mm -hmm. I think I wrote 40 or 50 pages of uh, double space, not double, one and a half space. And uh, I have that too, that's on my computer, and uh, I've never printed it, it's mm -hmm. on my computer. Well, I turned, it, I turned in what I had to Greg, um, there was probably, there might have been some lack of communication. Uh, I wasn't sure what Greg really wanted. And I also figured that he would probably edit it himself and put a lot of it into his writing style mm -hmm. so that the whole book would be Greg Jones. I, I wasn't even going to be considered one of the authors. He would, he would acknowledge me in the mm -hmm. foreword, but uh, other than that, uh, he, it was his book to be his book. So I gave him all everything I had, and uh, I gave him a CD. I 
printed off a CD and gave it to him. That was a couple of years ago, and I don't know what happened. The, I, the book, as far as I know, has never been published. And I, I haven't seen much of Greg lately, so I haven't had a chance to directly ask him why the book ha is not out there. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I have all that stuff, all that research. And so as a result of that, prog of that program and the other papers that I've written, I have lots and lots of clippings, you know, stuff I've clipped out. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of it came out of the newspaper, a lot of it, uh, some of it came off the internet, you know, there's so much on the internet now, much of which you can't rely on, but um, there is a lot of stuff out there. So I have a lot of that in my files, stuff that I thought I may or may not use. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, I thought about writing more of a book, you know, about the history of wine in Oregon. But I decided against it on the grounds that, uh, on a couple of grounds. One was that uh, I felt like I was too old. Uh, I could have I could have written a book, but I didn't know. I felt I was too old to to be sure that I could finish it. You know, mm -hmm. same thing could have happened to that happened to Greg Jones's uh, friend, who Greg knew. Uh, he was killed, but, but um, I thought, you know, if I started a book, could I finish it? That was the bottom line. The other thing was that I, I, it didn't take me very long to figure out by going up north that I was not an insider. I was an outsider up there. Here, I'm an insider. Mm -hmm. There, I was an outsider. And I didn't have very many contacts. I tried to see a couple of people who just flatly refused to talk to me. Mm. And my, my, I probably wouldn't have been able to talk to anybody if it hadn't been for Dick. And so I, I was able to talk to, I don't know, I talked to half a dozen people up there that were important people. Um, and uh, some of that came about through, through Dick uh, helping me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I gave up the idea of writing. Uh, uh, also, it was it's a huge topic, as you know. It's really huge, and uh, I just felt like I, I couldn't do it. So then I thought, well, maybe I could just concentrate on the local area here in Southern Oregon, and I still think that's a good idea because I still have all this stuff, right. you know. But um, it's getting pretty big here too, now that we have something on the order of 50 or 60 wineries here. Uh, and so if I do anything, I'm going to go back to the beginning again, because I was never completely happy with the first paper that I wrote. I felt like there were a lot of unanswered questions and I had to fit all this into 12 weeks, you know, or 10 weeks, whatever a quarter is. Right. And uh, so I still think I might go back and start over again. And, and for that, that reason, I've been reluctant to get rid of anything that I have. Mm -hmm. But I will, I will, I'll get rid of all of it. Uh, <laughs> it's all gonna go at some mm -hmm. point. Some of it may be useless and can be thrown out, but a lot of it is good information, including the clippings that I cut out, because mm -hmm. it will save somebody the work of going back and finding it in the archives, you know, mm -hmm. of the newspaper. So, um, and then uh, uh, something else popped into my mind at this point. 
maybe it'll come back to me. But uh, well, I can't I can't think of it right now. But maybe it'll come back to me. Okay. So. You've done all of this great research on the early beginnings of the wine industry, yeah. not just the more modern sense. Would you mind leading us through that? With what? Through the, the early histories. So when did it get started here and, and who were some of the original families? Oh, yeah, I could tell you. And I'm, I want to come back to that on a, a particular point that I'll, I'll elaborate on when we come back to it. Sure. But, um, the, the early history of wine in Oregon from the beginning is very uh, interesting because the, Oregon now, of course, is, is a powerhouse yeah. in wine. Everybody knows about Oregon wine, even overseas they know about Oregon Pinot. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact is that the Oregon wine industry started here. It didn't start up there, it started here. Right. And it started, um, it was started by Peter Britt. Have you ever heard of Peter Britt? I have, and in fact, we went to Southern Oregon Historical Society yesterday okay. and saw his papers. Yeah, well, they have a lot of stuff on Peter Britt. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you may know this, uh, when Peter Britt died, no, not, not when Peter Britt died, when his daughter died, there, he only had two children, and neither one of them had any children. So when, when the daughter died, um, not that long ago, maybe in the 60s or 70s, uh, she donated everything to Southern Oregon University. Okay. And so they have tons of stuff here, uh, including, uh, well, there, there are a million f photographs, because he was a photographer. Mm -hmm. Well, my understanding from Mary Jane is that the university don't, uh, loaned the Southern Oregon Historical Society a lot of uh, material. And so they have a lot of material on uh, Peter Britt mm -hmm. at the Historical Society. And that's where I got a lot, did a lot of my research mm -hmm. when I was writing that paper. So um, Peter Britt uh, came to the valley in 19, 1852. And he came from Switzerland, and he was in Switzerland. He came from an area that was surrounded by vineyards, so he obviously knew about wine. And uh, he made when he came when he emigrated to the U.S. He made a stop in Illinois, just east of St. Louis, at a Swiss colony. Um, it was an agricultural colony, not far from St. Louis. I'm guessing 30 or 40 miles. It was pretty close. Uh, that Swiss colony was a, also a wine, a grape growing colony, and they made wine there. Then he emigrated uh, from there to Oregon, and he ended up, he took the Oregon Trail, so he ended up in uh, Portland. Mm -hmm. And uh, about that time was the gold strike in Jacksonville. Uh, they found gold in a stream in Jacksonville, and there was basically nothing there in Jacksonville. I mean, there were, there were probably no white people in Jacksonville at that time. But the, the way it happened was the gold mine, the people who came to California for the gold rush ran out of gold in California, so they kept moving north. They kept looking at other uh, streams and other places for gold, and then they finally 
made it to Oregon, and, and somehow or another they discovered gold in, in uh, Jacksonville, mm -hmm. which, was, which wasn't Jacksonville at the time. It was just nothing. It was southern Oregon. Well, Brett heard about this, and he was um, a photographer. He had trained, he was trained as an artist, but he realized in the late uh, 1840s that photography was the way to go. That was a new, a new field. Mm -hmm. So when he came to the U.S., he trained in photography in St. Louis. Uh, at that time, they called them daguerreotypes. Oh yes. Yeah, course. and they're, they're you'll you you've seen them in historical mm -hmm. in history books, the the not colored but you know kind of right yeah right daguerreotype. Mm -hmm. So he was a daguerreotype artist. So he decided uh, from Portland that he could probably make a better living by coming to uh, the the uh, this area, Southern Oregon. So he did. He came down here. Well, I think there was quite a, there was some commerce at that time, uh, mostly by horses, you know, people on horseback and wagons moving from Portland south to mm -hmm. various other places. So Peter Britt came south and he found uh, Jacksonville and he uh, at some point made a land claim. He, he claimed some lamb, land and he built a cabin. And um, he set up his photography studio, and that's what he planned to to how he planned to make a living was doing photography. Mm -hmm. Well, he saw he was a very bright guy. He was a really a smart guy, and he was also very interested in making money. And he found a lot of other uh, interests that, where he thought he could make some money. And one of the things that happened was that they opened up a, a pack train trail, for lack of a better word for it, uh, between Jacksonville and the coast. There had a new seaport opened up in Crescent City in Northern California, just below the Oregon line. And so commerce was coming by sea from San Francisco to Crescent City. So the people in Jacksonville decided that uh, they wanted to get in on this, so they established a trail to go from Jacksonville over to the coast. Well, it's pretty far, and, uh, but they, 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 did the, they made up these mule trains, and they went over to the coast and, uh, with a pack of mules, and they would bring back uh, material that had been brought to Crescent City by schooner from San Francisco. So Britt uh, got into the pack business and he ran pack trains for, for some, for a couple of years. And uh, he, he made a lot of money on it because what he did, uh, it was cheap to send material from San Francisco to Crescent City by boat but it was expensive to bring it in by pack train because it took 10 days each way. And they had to have all these mules and everything. So Brent would go over there and he would pay cash for merchandise that came into Crescent City. And then he would bring it back to Jacksonville, raise the price and resell it. And of course the people in Jacksonville didn't have any choice because they weren't near anything. You know, they were so far away from everything. Even getting to Portland took forever. 
And so they, uh, so he made a lot of money. Then he started buying land, and he bought a lot of land. He owned quite a bit of land in the Jacksonville area. Well, sooner or later, he decided that he needed to have a vineyard. So he got a hold of um, grapes, and that's one of the areas I don't know how he got them. Mm -hmm. That's a big question mark. Mm -hmm. But he planted the mission grape. Are you familiar with the mission grape? He planted the mission grape. Well, he could only have gotten that from California. And my theory, of course, is that he got it off the boat. From, he ordered it. He probably ordered it from a nursery. They sent it up on the boat to Crescent City, and he brought it over by pack train. Mm -hmm. uh, because as far as I know, Mission Grape wasn't available anywhere but California. Right. I mean, it was all over California. It was almost the only grape in California at that time. So he planted mission, mission vines on his property. Well, his property today is the site of the Brit Festival, the music festival. And uh, his house is gone. Everything's gone now, except all these wonderful trees that he planted. And he, so he planted a vineyard. And, as, and he, my best estimate of when he planted that was about 1855. He had been here three years at that time. And uh, that would have given him plenty of time to get the vineyard in the ground. Mm -hmm. Oh, also, he, there, um, wild grapes, Vitus californica, were growing all over the place. They're still growing all over the place. You can go out here in Ashland and find Vitus californica today. Okay. Well, they were growing like crazy in those days in Jack around Jacksonville, around the streams where there was, was water. And, and Britt hypothesized that um, if the wild grapes were doing well, he, he thought that the cultured grapes would do well. Well, they thought that in the East Coast, too, but it didn't work. Mm -hmm. It didn't work at all. And in fact, the East Coast just, everything died. So, uh, so Britt felt that he could get grapes to grow, which, of course, he did. He, he managed to get these cuttings. I'm assuming he got cuttings. He may have gotten uh, rooted, rooted vines, but he probably got cuttings. They would be much easier to transport. And uh, it would have been a piece of cake to buy cuttings in California, have them shipped up uh, in the schooner to Crescent City, and then bring them over. So I think he planted them about 1855. And then, uh, once he, once he had all these grapes, he decided to start making wine. Well, you have to remember that in those days, a lot of people made wine at home, if, particularly if they were from Europe, because they were used to it. And so they would plant some grapes. They'd get a hold of some vines and plant some grapes. And uh, when they got their grapes, they'd make wine from it. There wasn't much else they could do. They could either eat them, make uh, jelly, um, raisins or wine. So Britt decided to make wine and so he made wine from Mission Grape. Well, we don't know how good the wine was. It was probably terrible, but uh, he made the wine and he eventually, when he built his house, he eventually built a wine cellar into the house on the low, low level and there are pictures and I'm sure you've seen them of Peter Britt's winery uh, and his equipment. And he eventually had room for about 3,000 gallons of wine in his cellar. 
Now that doesn't mean that he made 3,000 gallons every year, it just means that that's how much he could store. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that was mostly barrel storage and not, and not, because and I don't even know if he bottled wine. A lot of people didn't even bottle wine at that time. They would take it out of the barrel and put it in a jug or they would somehow sell, sell it in sort of in bulk. Mm -hmm. So Britt started making uh, wine and he had, I, I want to say he had a couple of acres at his place in Jacksonville. And we have, there are some pictures. I have uh, some, uh, the Historical Society has some pictures of Britt's house with the vineyard in front of it. So uh, at some point, uh, and the closest I could come to it was 1866, I found an article uh, that indicated that he was making wine by 1866. Mm -hmm. So between 1855 and 1866, he was making wine. Then other people started moving in, and eventually Jacksonville, at one point, uh, there were, at one point Jacksonville was the largest city in Oregon. And this was as a result of the, the gold mining industry mm -hmm. and the agricultural industry that followed it because you can't have people living somewhere without right. eating. Right. So they started planting wheat and doing, you know, trees and, and uh, so they ended up with a fairly large agricultural community. Um, the original name of Jacksonville escapes me, but it was something like um, Tent City or something like that. I, I can't remember. Maybe it'll come to me. And then they changed the name of it to Jacksonville. But at one time, and this would have been probably in the 1860s or 70s, it was the biggest town in Oregon, even larger than Portland. Uh, I'm not sure when that was, so, so uh, but, but it, it's in the history books. Well, um, Eventually, other people decided they wanted to grow grapes. And so Britt started giving, either giving or selling, knowing about Britt, he probably sold the cuttings right. to other people. So by the end of the century, uh, there were about 100 acres of, of vines in, southern, in uh, Rogue Valley. Uh, there were others in the Umpqua region, and I won't even get into that because we're not talking about Umpqua, although I have, I did, I did some research on the Umpqua too, but not very much. Anyway, um, there were about 100 acres, and most of that was probably from cuttings from, from Peter Britt's uh, vines. And so sooner, uh, eventually, uh, so then, so he was making wine by 1866, in 1873, he got a letter from the Internal Revenue Service. Well, the Internal Revenue Service didn't even exist until uh, in the 1870s. They had to raise money to help pay off the Civil War. And um, so they started taxing wine that was for sale. They taxed everything. They taxed uh, whiskey and rum and beer as well. So, so they wrote him a letter and they said that they were aware that he was selling wine. And he got mad and he told, the, he told them that he was just selling it to his friends and that he wasn't really in the wine business and they, they, they wouldn't accept that 
that uh, reason. And so they, uh, so he, he, at that point, he gave up. He, he, he tried to overturn their, their ruling, but he couldn't, he couldn't do it. It was, just, it was law. Right. He had to pay the taxes. So, and now this is another area that I'm really weak on because I haven't been able to find anything. I'm sure it's out there. All I have to do is find out where I can find it. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole story around that, uh, around this challenge by the inter by the Revenue Service. It wasn't called the Internal Revenue. It was it was just called Internal Revenue at that point. It wasn't the Internal Revenue Service. Mm -hmm. So it was the Internal Revenue. Well, then, so he decided that um, if he was going to be, have to pay taxes, he might as well make money on his wine. So he did. He started selling it to everybody, anybody. There were a lot of saloons in Jacksonville. There was also, by 18, sometime in the 1880s, the railroad was completed between Portland and San Francisco. In fact, it came together right here. Right here in Ashland, wow, okay. you know they were they were working this way. They came down from Portland and up from San Francisco, and when they met in Ashland, it was completed. So at that time, he was able to ship wine, and he was able to ship it north or or south. He probably mostly shipped it north. One of his biggest customers was the Catholic Church, and uh, there was a, a person named Father Blanchet who was the Prelate in uh, up north. He was actually there's a little town up there. Where was what's that town? Not far from McMinnville. Um, Dayton. Hmm. Dayton. They have a very early Catholic no, history. No. Uh, well, maybe I'll think of that too. It's in my my paper. Uh, Father Blanchet wanted to buy communion wine for the church and. Uh, for the whole state, and and so he bought wine from Peter Brett. So uh, Brett kept making wine, and during the 18, I want to say 70s, mostly in the 80s, mostly the 17, the uh, nine, the 1880s, he bought over 200 different varieties of grapes by cuttings and planted them in his vineyard. By this time, he, he, he had bought new property, not where he, his house was, but just northeast of Jacksonville, on the way to Central Point, on what they call Old Stage Road today. And so, it went, so by the end of the century, he had planted these couple hundred different varieties, and he was just experimenting. That's what Britt did all the time. He was always experimenting with what would grow and what would do well. And he was making wine from all these different varieties. Well, he bought grapes from, I think, mostly from Europe. He had, no, he bought them from California. He, he bought them from um, Charles Wetmore, who was a big name in California at that time. Because at that time, California had everything. They had all the grapes from Europe. So he bought Cabernet, he bought Zinfandel, he bought, you name it, he bought it. And he also bought eastern grapes, grapes from, from the east coast. And uh, in fact, uh, you'll love this, he, he actually bought, he was, a, he was really the first person in Oregon to plant Pinot Noir, Peter Britt. 
It was not Richard Summer. Right. It was not Charles Curry or David Lett. It was Peter Britt. And it's documented. We have proof that he imported a grape called um, the Franc Pinot. Franc Pinot, F-R-A-N-C Pinot. So I naturally got on my, in my Janice's Robinson uh, atlas or book to see what Franc Pinot was. It's Pinot Noir. And so Peter Britt was the first one. But he didn't make Pinot Noir. He grew it. And the wine that he made was basically your basic red wine. That's, and I don't know what he called it, but he put everything together. That's how they made wine in, in the 19th century. They didn't make Pinot Noir or Cabernet or Zinfandel. They just made red wine and they put it all together. And sometimes he even put white wine in with the red wine. So that was the nature of winemaking in the 19th century. Right. So, uh, Brit, and, and all this is on record at the Southern Oregon Historical Society. There are diaries there with lists, lists of the grapes that he bought. And all these diaries were kept by his son. Peter didn't do it. His son did it. And they're very interesting. I've been through them a couple of times, through these diaries. And um, so he was really, the, so the bottom line, is, uh, well, well, let me back up just a bit. He had given cuttings or sold cuttings to other people. So by, by about 1900, there were, just outside of Jacksonville, northeast of Jacksonville, there was a beautiful area out there. It's still there mm -hmm. uh, with houses now. Not very many houses. They're on large lots, like two or three acre lots. There was a beautiful hillside there, and it was planted full of grapes. Peter Britt had part of it, and there were three or four other people that had part of that, that, uh, that area of vineyards. And they were making brandy, and they were making wine. And um, there, were, there was probably in the neighborhood of more than 50 acres, uh, for, probably, probably around 50 acres planted in that area. I've been out there and taken pictures of it, and, and I've seen it. I have maps that show exactly where it is. And uh, so that basically was the beginning of the wine industry in Oregon. And for some years, uh, Peter Britt was the only one that was making any wine. Mm -hmm. Now, the uh, history in the Umpqua is equally interesting, and it's another story. Um, as I said, I've. I've also written a brief history of wine in the Umpqua from material that I got from the uh, Historical Society up there. But it's by no means uh, uh, exhaustive. It's, it's mm -hmm. just a, I don't know, four or five, three, four or five pages is all it is. Um, Britt died in 19... 05. He had gone on a trip to Portland and when he came back he caught a cold and he, then he it went on to his chest. Mm -hmm. He died of, of pneumonia probably. And uh, his son apparently didn't really care that much for the winery because as soon as Britt was gone his son quit making wine. There was no more wine. And uh, they sold wine for two more years until 1907. But he never, he never started up the winery, the, uh, the winery 
after his father died. Well, around this time, uh, there was a lot of prohibition uh, sentiment going on in the whole country. In fact, Oregon that was actually, Oregon Territory was the first place in the country that passed a prohibition law, mm -hmm. 1844. Uh, that was repealed five years later. But in 1914, they passed another one, which took effect in 16, and you know this. Um, so between the death of Brit and the lurking prohibition, uh, and Oregon was a pretty conservative state. You know, there were a lot of church, church people here, a lot of religious activity in Oregon against drinking, you know, and a pro prohibition uh, activity. So it was no surprise that they passed the law in, 18, in 1914 to prohibit all alcohol. And uh, so they did. And so that, that period was a, a really dead period. And, and of course, then the whole time of prohibition, nothing happened at all. Mm -hmm. uh, some other states, notably California, sold grapes during prohibition to home winemakers because it was legal. Um, the Dorners, have you heard that name? Yes. Dorners? The Dorners sold grapes during Prohibition to home winemakers, but as far as I can determine, they were the only ones in Southern Oregon who were able to sell grapes during Prohibition. Uh, not that you had to be able to, you just had to have a vineyard and people interested in buying it. And, and it may, there might have been some of that going on in the, in the local area, but um, the, the, the whole industry just dried up. And mm -hmm. Also, I, I have speculated in my second paper that by the time Brit died, there was phylloxera in Southern Oregon. Oh. I think there might have been. I'm a, I, I, there's no way to prove it. Uh, that, there's no way to prove that it happened. Uh, have you heard of Porter Lombard? Yes, in fact, we interviewed him yesterday. Okay, I, w I was hoping you would interview him because mm -hmm. Porter is, in my view, is the father of the, of the, the, of the modern wine industry in Southern Oregon. Mm. He's a very, very major figure. Uh, Porter has told me that he thinks there was phylloxera found here during the Depression, 1933. And so I got to thinking about it. I wrote a fairly long piece about that in my second paper. I wrote a, two or three pages about phylloxera. And I feel certain that, that phylloxera came in either through Peter Britt or through another person named A.H. Uh, Carson. A.H. Carson was a person who came from the East and he brought um, he brought vines with him. He, he, he was more interested in being a nursery man. And he, he established a property out in uh, almost the Grants Pass on the, on the same highway that you take to go to the Applegate. You keep going, you end up in Grants Pass. Mm -hmm. Just before you get to Grants Pass, in a little area, near a little area called Murphy, that's where his, that's where his property was. And he, he, he grew and sold grapevines and, and fruit trees and all sorts of things like that. And so it's, it's possible that um, Carson might have brought it in too. Now, phylloxera is not spread by cuttings. 
You can't spread it by cuttings. It's spread by rooted plants. And so who would have sold rooted plants? Well, Carson would have sold rooted plants because he was growing them in his, in his uh, property. Mm -hmm. And Peter Britt might have sold rooted plants as well because it's really easy to root a grapevine. You take a cutting and you stick it in the ground and it'll grow. You hardly even have to do anything with it. It just needs water, that's all. Hmm. So if you do it in November, take a cutting in November, put it in the ground, it rains all winter, in the spring it'll have little leaves come out. It's really easy to grow a grapevine. Wow, okay. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how phylloxera got here, but it had to have come before prohibition because after prohibition, nobody was bringing anything into the area. Mm -hmm. So it probably happened before prohibition. And then they definitely established there was phylloxera here at Dunbar Carpenter's property. And that would have been, oh, I just read it yesterday. It was in the 70s or, or 80s. Uh, so there's phylloxera here in southern Oregon. And that's why everybody has to plant on rootstocks. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that after Britt died and then Prohibition came and then Phylloxera was in some of the vineyards and nobody was taking care of them anyway. So they all, the vineyards all died. They just went away. But in some cases, uh, the Phylloxera didn't go away. It, it still was able to maintain itself on right. some, some kind of roots. And so uh, Phylloxera has persisted to, to this day. In, uh, in southern Oregon, and uh, but then, but then, and then, of course, um, well, the other thing I wrote about in my second paper was that uh, around the 1880s, they began to plant pears in the Rogue Valley. Peter Britt did plant some pears, but then a lot of other people did too. So we don't know who the first pear people were. It doesn't matter. By 1912, there was something on the order of 25,000 acres of pears in the Rogue Valley versus 100 acres of grapes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. So people weren't interested in grapes. As soon as the prohibition came along, uh, everybody quit. There was no, there just wasn't any interest anymore. And then right after prohibition ended, we were in the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And after that, we were in World War II. So it wasn't until the 50s that there was right. any interest at all, even in California. And uh, California did survive prohibition and, and the industry started up again. But by the time, uh, by the time I took my first class at Davis, which was in 1962, Maynard Amarine told us in the class that the production in the production of wine in California, over 50% of it was dessert wine. In other words, port, sherry, muscatel, the kind of wine that, that, you know, who drinks those kind of wines. And it took another, about another five years before finally table wine exceeded uh, the uh, growth of, uh, exceeded the, the production of, uh, of sweet wine. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're still making sweet wine in California, and it's still bulk wine, and it's still, you know, sort of low-end wine. 
but uh, that never happened in in uh, Oregon. They, they they they're just by the end of prohibition, there were virtually no vineyards in in Oregon at all, especially in southern Oregon. I and I don't know of I really don't know of any in northern Oregon either. So. So what changed? What what happened in the 1950s and 60s, at least in this area? That, or I guess, when did wine production start again for Rogue Valley? I'm sorry. Would you repeat the question? Sorry. Yes, it was sort of a jumble of questions. Yeah. Um, so there, there was virtually no wine production at all None. in this area. No, not in the Rogue Valley. Right. No. When did it get started again? And not until 1972. Okay. Yeah, and uh, that's the topic of my third paper, which was the 70s. Mm -hmm. And what happened there was that, well, first of all, Porter Lombard probably told you uh, some of this. Porter came to the Rogue Valley in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. he, stop me if you've heard this story, oh, because well, I got do. it from Porter, and he may have given it to you, too. Porter came here in the late 60s to the, to the uh, Extension Center, mm -hmm. and he was the superintendent of the Extension Center. And he uh, replaced a man named Chet Cordy, I believe that was his name, C-O-R-D-Y, Chet, and I think his first name was Chet, Chet Cordy, who had been there for years. And the Extension Center had been set up specifically for the pear industry set up by OSU for the pear industry because there wasn't anything else here. Apples had gone, come and gone and everything else had sort of come and gone. There were a scattering of peaches and plums and things, but it was 25,000 acres of, of pears. They deserved a, an extension agent. So that's what they did. They had extension service here. Well, Porter came in 68, I think it was 68, Porter was from Yakima, Washington, okay? Cordy was from the Napa Valley. So Porter at some point asked Cordy about the potential of the Rogue Valley for grapes. And Cordy said, basically, this is not the Napa Valley. Mm. Well, up in Washington, in Yakima, the Washington State University had an extension center in Yakima or somewhere near, yeah, well, it was in the Yakima Valley, I'll, I'll say. I'm not sure exactly where it was. They had a, a guy, they had a professor who was running an experiment station there, and he was doing uh, experimental plantings of European grapes, Vitus vinifera, in Washington. Nobody had done that, and he came over a few years after they grew the grapes and made some wine, they came to the conclusion that that part of Washington was really good for growing Vitus vinifera. So uh, Porter got, wor uh, got word of this, so he went up to see uh, this man, and I can't remember his name either, uh, but Porter went up to see him, and Porter also realized that the climate, since he grew up there, the climate in Yakima was virtually identical to the climate here. So Porter said if grapes can do well up there, they can do well here, even though this is not the Napa Valley. And so, 
So Porter proceeded to plant an experimental vineyard on, at Hanley Road, which is where he was, where his office was. This is where the experiment station was, almost in Jacksonville. Do you know where Hanley Road is? Roughly, yes. Yeah, it was, it's just before you get to Jacksonville mm -hmm. from Medford. You turn right and it's not far. So he planted a vineyard, I'm not sure how big it was, uh, probably close to an acre of grapes. And he planted all the, the routine grapes from California, Cabernet, uh, Zinfandel, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, everything. Everything that they were growing in California, he planted there. And they, they, did, they did it scientifically. They made observations on the, the, the harvest dates the uh, numbers on the grapes, the, the sugar, the acid, the, all the, everything they needed to know. And after several years, they came to the conclusion that grapes were very well suited for the uh, Rogue Valley. And uh, it, in the meantime, a few people had started to move in. And um, I, I have all this in my third paper. Uh, there were about five or six people that I consider the pioneers of the, of the area. And most of them came in contact with Porter. And in fact, Porter gave me the names when I asked him. I interviewed him years ago. And Porter gave me these original, these names of these original uh, five or six people. And I contacted every single one of them and I interviewed all of them. And, uh, all of them wanted to get into growing grapes. Some of them were already established here. Mm -hmm. uh, they, had, they had farms and they just wanted to something different, you know, so they decided to plant grapes. Some of them came in from the outside. Uh, the, the, probably the leader of all these people was a guy named Frank Wisnowski. And Frank um, eventually started the Valley View Winery. Not to be confused in any way with Peter Britt's Valley View Winery. That, that's another story which I may or may not have time to, your time to uh, tell you. So uh, Frank Wisnowski had been an engineer uh, uh, for a big company, uh, building things like dams and huge projects. And he, he, found, he had spent some time in California and had taken, uh, had gotten interested in wine, and had taken a couple of classes at Davis in in uh, winemaking. Mm -hmm. And he decided he wanted to make wine, and and he wanted to, he, he didn't know where, but he had he got another job up, I think in Astoria. He was on a job up there, probably a bridge or something. And he had some friends who were familiar with the Rogue Valley, so he traveled down here. And he became familiar with the Rogue Valley. And he decided this was where he wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And so when he was ready to make his move, he came down here and he bought property out where he is right now in uh, the Applegate Valley. And he uh, started to plant grapes. And he planted his first grapes in 1972. Now, several other people started planting them at the same time. So I was never able to figure out who, who was first. And I, I finally came to the conclusion that it didn't matter. You know, they all planted grapes at about the same time. And part of this was um, associated with a class that was given at Rogue Community College in 1972. 
Uh, Dick Troon, you've heard that name. Mm -hmm. Dick Troon was one of the people, he was a farmer here, he was growing wheat or something out in the Applegate, and he wanted to plant some grapes, but nobody knew anything about it. No, nobody knew anything about growing grapes. So Dick went to Rogue Community College and he said, can you guys put on a class uh, to teach viticulture? And they said, oh, well, we'll do that if you find us an instructor. Because nobody around here knew anything about it. So, so Dick went up north and he found Charles Curry. Who, uh, he, uh, Char at that time, Charles, uh, or Chuck, he went by Chuck. Uh, Chuck Curry and Dick Erath were in the business of growing grapevines to sell. Mm -hmm. Okay, you, you probably knew that. And so Dick talked to Chuck and Chuck said, yeah, I'll come down and teach the class. So once a week, he came down to Grants Pass, which is where Road Community was, is, uh, is now and was at that time. There's now a branch in Medford, but this was taught at Grants Pass. And he, oh, they wanted him to get 10 students. Well, he couldn't get 10, but he got, I think, eight or nine. Um, it, with one exception, everybody that was in that class eventually planted grapes. And uh, Frank Wisnowski was in that class. And I can't name all the others. There were quite a, the, but, but with one exception, they all planted grapes. Mm -hmm. um, So that class was really, I call it the class of 72, that class was really important as far as the local wine industry was concerned. And Porter Lombard and his experimental vineyard were very important as far as the local wine because a lot of these, got, these people that took the class, they got cuttings from Porter Lombard. He supplied cuttings for probably well over half the people who started a vineyard here in in uh, the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And of course, Porter was the extension agent, so he knew all these people, and they all knew him. Some of them bought their grapes, their grapevines from Corey, uh, and that's how Dick Troon knew Corey, because he was gonna buy grapevines from him. That's another story, but I'll only allude to it. Corey did not have a good reputation for the quality of his grapevines. And um, I've never been able to get the real story, but uh, he and Dick Erath split up. Uh, they split up, and Corey continued to sell grapevines, and so did Dick, as far as I know. Uh, I don't think for much longer, because Dick started to get busy with his own. Uh, the, the grapevines that got sent down here uh, had some problems. Uh, a lot of people had, they, in fact, a lot of them died. A lot of the grapevines died. So in the big picture, the local growers who, were, who bought grapevines from Chuck Curry weren't that taken with uh, the product. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot about Chuck Curry. Uh, I may or may not be able to tell you more about him. Um, but anyway, that's how the industry got started, just with those five or six people Ted Gerber was another one. He came up from California, and uh, he kind kind of went a different route. But but he was also part of the that pioneer group, and that's the way it stayed for a while. And and as you probably know, Frank Wisnowski died in 1980. 
he was a diver, a commercial diver, and that was part of his job. He built, they built dams and they had to have underwater uh, people to go down and inspect uh, piers and things like that. Um, Frank went down on a dive as, uh, for, as part of his job and he never came back up and they never found him either. And uh, they, I've talked to uh, one person who knew Frank very, very well. There were, there were even some insinuations that he was still alive, you know, that he took off. Uh, this guy said, no way, he said Frank was not like that. He had a big family and he was Catholic and he was a very strong religious person and he would never have done anything like that. And he thinks that he was buried by a landslide underwater. And uh, so they never will find him. He's at the base of uh, the, the dam up there that, that he helped build. When, when Frank died, the industry kind of went on hold. There was one other winery, and that was out in the Illinois Valley. It was called uh, Siskiyou Winery. And uh, the person that, 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 there was an attachment or a, a relationship there too between the Siskiyou Winery and the class of 72. Uh, the person uh, that started the vineyard at the Siskiyou Winery had been in the class of 72. So I consider that, a, that class of 72 to be an important landmark in, in the uh, local wine scene. Well, then uh, when Frank died, they had a horrible time staying in business at Valley View. I mean, they never had that much money to start with. And, and when Frank died, he had four, uh, four children. And so his oldest son, uh, whose name was Bob, uh, Robert, Robert came and, and worked in the winery and uh, he became the, the general manager of the winery because Mrs. Uh, Wisnowski was not interested in, in running the winery. So Bob came. Bob didn't want to do it, but he did because his father died and his mother asked him to. So he came and, it, and the brothers, uh, Mike and Mark, uh, they were much younger, and they were they were they were still in like grammar school, so they weren't able to do anything. So Bob was the only one, and I think Bob maybe had just finished college. Maybe the boys were not. Maybe they were in high school, but there was a, a discrepancy in age, and Bob was the only one who could do it. So he came, and <clears throat> he he managed the winery. There was a guy, the original winemaker at Valley View was a guy named Guy Ruland, and Guy was basically fired by Wisnowski for misdeeds at the winery, and he brought in a young man named John Eagle, and John wasn't even a winemaker, he was a sheep raiser, and, and, but John learned a lot from Guy Ruland, and so when, when Frank died, John took over the the winemaking. They didn't really intend for him to do that, mm -hmm. but he did. And uh, the first few vintages were not made out here in, uh, in the Applegate. They were made up north by Bill Fuller. You, I'm sure you know Bill mm -hmm. Fuller's name mm -hmm. uh, at Tualatin. So, um, so the uh, first, uh, I think 76, the first two vintages were made at, at uh, Tualatin, and the first vintage here was 77. So uh, the, the whole 
decade of the 80s was a big problem for Valley View. They, they just barely hung on. And, uh, but eventually, the boys grew up, and they, they were interested in the winery, so they took over when they could. I think they didn't take over until they graduated from college, but they took over. And in 1990, they hired John Guerrero as a winemaker, and he was um, a Davis graduate, knew, really knew what he was doing, and he's still there. He's been there now for, for all these years. Wow. And uh, let's see, that, that would be 1990. For uh, 24 years, John's been at Valley View. Good, he's a, he's a good winemaker. Uh, Siskiyou eventually went under. Uh, the person who established Siskiyou died, and they eventually sold the, the winery, and it's now part of Bridgeview. Uh, it has a separate name. They call it Bear Creek Winery. Okay. But that's the original Siskiyou Winery, and uh, that's owned by the family of Bridgeview. Bridgeview came in in the early 80s, and I have not talked to them. I, my history ended when Frank Wisnowski died, and uh, I haven't talk, ever talked to Bridgeview, but they started after Frank was gone. And uh, so during the 80s, that was a whole decade, and there was almost nothing going on, mm -hmm. even in the 80s. Two wineries, and that was all. And uh, there were a few other people who started vineyards during that time, but there wasn't any real activity. The real activity started in the 90s, and uh, that's another whole story which I have not been able to research. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just, I mean, I've been aware of it because I've been here the whole time. You know, I've been here since 79, and, uh, but um, that's another whole history that remains to be written. Right, right. <laughs> and there are some important people in that development as well. Mm -hmm. You may have some of the names. I don't know what names you have, but uh, and of course, after 2000, it just exploded. You know, it just went nuts. And now I don't even know how many wineries we have right now because once Linda Donovan set up her shop in Medford. Uh, she started making a virtual, you know, wine for virtual vineyard, virtual winemakers or virtual mm -hmm. uh, wineries. And I, I think she has 15 or 20 labels coming out of her one property, her one winery. Mm -hmm. So she's been a pretty important person too. I wouldn't, I would, you definitely need to talk to Linda Donovan. Okay. And uh, get that. Okay, so to continue, uh, do you happen to recall the names of a few others that started from that class of 72? I know we talked about Frank Wisnowski, Dick Troon, Ted Gerber. Um, are there other names? That Gerber did not. I, okay. can, I can more easily tell you who wasn't in that class than I can who was. Okay. Not in the class was Roger Lane, who was one of the pioneers, but he didn't take that class. Uh, Dunbar Carpenter didn't take the class. And I said Gerber didn't take it. Um, John Osterhout did take the class. Uh, there were a couple people from up up north. I call up north uh, Rose, Roseburg area, okay. Umpqua. Um, the, I told you the man who planted the original vineyard at Siskiyou Winery, uh, he sold that vineyard to Chuck and Susie David. 
and I'm at a loss to remember his name. When you get over 80, you don't remember names as well as you once did. Uh, but he was in the class, and uh, so he he was really a, a spiritual antecedent of uh, of the wine of the wine industry because he sold the, the he sold the vineyard to these people who established the uh, winery. Mm -hmm. So for many years, uh, the, uh, most of the 80s and even into the 90s, those were the only two wineries that were making wine in the Rogue Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, Forrest wasn't even making wine in the beginning. Uh, Ted Gerber told me that he didn't even start making wine till right around, I think, right around 1990 because um, he was selling his grapes to uh, Valley View and uh, some of them were even going up north, I think. But then he started to have trouble selling all of his grapes, so that's when he decided to uh, go into the wine business. And that's mm -hmm. when he, I'm pretty sure that's when he hired Sarah Powell. Uh, was right around 1990, or real close to that. He might have made it himself for a few years because he knew how to make wine. He just, but he had never had any real training in winemaking. Mm -hmm. Then he, he uh, so at some point he decided to hire Sarah. Okay. I know you aren't directly involved with the industry anymore, but given your depth of experience and knowledge and seeing what's been going on these last couple of decades, where do you think the wine industry will go for the Rogue Valley? Do you imagine it getting much bigger? And what do you think it'll be known for? Um, okay, those are two separate questions. Uh, where is it heading? Uh, I think I said in one of my papers where I thought it was heading, and I haven't changed my mind. Uh, sooner or later, one of the large wineries in California is going to buy property here in the Rogue Valley, mainly because there's still a lot of land available in the Rogue Valley. If you talk to Greg Jones, are you going to interview him? Not for this week. We're meeting him on Wednesday, and then we hope to come back down and do him. Yeah, next. but don't miss him. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's still a lot of land in this area for, for grapes. I mean, for example, the city of Ashland owns several hundred acres right out on uh, next to I-5, just north of town. And it's a so beautiful south-facing slope. It would be beautiful for a vineyard. Mm -hmm. And they, they were going to spray sewage on it. And uh, yeah, that was going to be part of their sewage disposal plant. Well, that didn't fit with the environmentalists who all live in Ashland. And so they, uh, they rose up and, and uh, got, that, got rid of that project. Mm -hmm. But the city still owns it. Anyway, somebody's going to come in here, a, a large uh, California or a, a large group of winemakers is uh, going to come in and, and put a, put a uh, huge vineyard in here, somewhere between 300 and 1,000 acres. That's already happened in your area. Uh, Jackson has bought a lot of property. Uh, uh, Kendall Jackson has bought a lot of property around Salem. I'm sure you're, you know that. Right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, and, and that's really kind of a first, you know, even for Northern Oregon, mm -hmm. that somebody from California has come in with big bucks and buys a big piece of property. Of course, St. Michelle came in and bought Dick Erath. Right. 
But that's a little bit different because uh, that was already an established vineyard. Kendall Jackson's coming in to start, I think, pretty much from, well, I think they, they bought a few um, producing vineyards, but I think they plan to really expand the plantings uh, so that they'll have a large holding in, here in Oregon. So I think that'll happen. But the other side of it is, um, is something that nobody knows. Uh, the best person to ask that question is probably Greg Jones. And I'll back up and tell you a little story about Greg. Uh, long about the time that Greg came here, which would have been in the early 90s, I think. I think it was in the early or mid 90s. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about him, but there, I saw an announcement that Greg Jones, a professor of geography at SOU, was going to give a lecture on grapes and, and vineyards. And well, I was interested, so I went to the lecture, and quite a few people did. A lot of people from the industry went to that lecture. And Greg took a, an entirely different approach than anybody else had ever taken. He took a very scientific approach where he, he, he was basically a climatologist. He's a trained climatologist. That was his major. He, he taught geography, but that's, climatology is part of geography, as you probably know. And so Greg gave a lecture, which was wonderful, on, uh, what, on the type of grapes we were growing here in the Rogue Valley. And he, he basically said, and I, I'll try to be real careful about what I say, because if Greg listens to what I said, he may disagree with me. Okay. Uh, he, he sort of said that we might be growing the wrong stuff here. That was kind of the, the bottom line. That instead of growing Cabernet and some of the other grapes that came from the colder, cooler areas of Europe, we should be growing grapes from the warmer and hotter areas of Europe, and including Spanish grapes. Well, he thought that Spanish grapes would do great here. Well, of course they have. His father has become Mr. Tempranillo USA, uh, Earl Jones. You, have you talked to him? We did when we were up in Roseburg. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, um, that, in a way, that changed my whole idea about what was growing here in the Rogue Valley. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out he was, of course, right. He was right. The message took a while to soak in. You know, people still kept planting Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, um, and so on. Grapes from northern part of uh, Europe. But then, I, then, then all of a sudden something happened and it turned around. It started to turn around. And I think Earl actually was really part of that turnaround, even though he wasn't in the Rogue Valley. When people saw that Earl was growing Tempranillo, and that, that not only was he growing it, but the wine that he was making was wonderful, mm -hmm. they began to think, oh, well, let's plant Tempranillo here. And now Tempranillo, which nobody ever heard of 10 years ago, is now a, 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 a semi-major factor in the, in the Rogue Valley. Well, the same thing happened with Syrah. The same thing has happened with several other grape varieties and uh, Rhone varieties, uh, um, Grenache, Grenache is mm -hmm. another one. White, white grapes, uh, Viognier, uh, Marsan and Roussan, those are all grapes from southern France, from the Rhone, lower Rhone Valley. And some of them are from Spain. 
Um, and some of them are from, even from Italy. People are now even looking at Italy for unusual. Uh, Chris Martin out of Troon, he just planted uh, a grape that's mostly grown in Sardinia, and nobody's ever heard of it. Uh, but he's growing it and he's marketing it already. So there's been a shift from, away from the old California standards and the European, northern European standards to the, the warmer climate grapes and to the southern France and southern Italy and Spain, those, the grapes that come from those areas. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting. Uh, in my opinion, as a former winemaker and also as a as a person who's conducted wine tastings uh, for many years, I think that that's exactly where this area needs to go. Uh, we can never, even our climates like California. It's I don't think it's much like Napa. I think it's more like like Mendocino mm -hmm. and Sonoma, but a lot like Mendocino. Um, we're never going to be able to compete with California. Never. You can't grow Cabernet here like they do in Napa Valley. And Chardonnay, pretty ordinary from here. I mean, it's nice wine, it's good wine, but it's not like Chardonnay from California. So we can't compete with California uh, with wines grown here in the valley, but, but we, can't, we can grow our own varieties that will thrive here. Now I heard, I think the last time I heard there was something on the order of 70, more than 70 different varieties growing in the Rogue Valley. Now that includes all the experimental plots that people are putting in a few vines and that doesn't mean there are that many uh, grapes in production. It just means that people are trying lots of different things. And the people here in the valley I think are extremely innovative and they realize that, that Forget Cabernet, uh, forget some of the others, uh, and and look for something that they can, something that they can make a niche for. And Rachel Martin, my friend at Red Lily, uh, she's growing a uh, white grape called Verdejo. That's a Spanish grape. I don't think I think she's the only one growing it in the valley now. Uh, they, they grow Tempranillo. They have a lot of Tempranillo and they've been marketing Tempranillo for a long time. Um, but now they're growing Verdejo and uh, this last harvest in 2012 uh, was the first harvest for Verdejo and she made about, oh, I think she only ended up with 120 gallons, which is, was only enough to bottle and get on into the tasting room so that people would know that more is coming. And, uh, but that's an example. And, and I asked Greg about that. I said, Greg, what do you think of Verdeo? He said, oh, it's great. He said, I don't know why more people aren't growing Verdeo. <laughs> well, Earl's growing Albarino, which, you know, is a Spanish white grape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's been very successful. And his Albarino is really good. Mm -hmm. It's dynamite. So, you know, we're headed in that direction. But you, you can't. I don't think we can keep going with 70 varieties, so we have to narrow it down. If we narrowed it down to maybe 10, I would say that um, in the reds, Syrah for sure, uh, Tempranillo for sure, probably, and I, and I think despite the market, I think Merlot for sure. 
Merlot makes really good wine here in the, in the Rogue Valley. And people have lost interest in it because it's sort of out of fashion. You know, ever since uh, that movie. Sideways. Yeah. yeah. Ever since that movie, uh, Merlot has sort of gone out of fashion. And now you'll find it in the shops. More often than not, it's in the sort of 10 to $15 range. You know, it's not up in the, mm -hmm. in the stratosphere of Cabernet. Cabernet Franc does real well here, too. Uh, but um, Cabernet Sauvignon does not. Uh, we've made some good wines from Cabernet Sauvignon, but, uh, and there are undoubtedly some microclimates around. So I think there will be, with the continuing interest in, in wine growing in the Rogue Valley, and, and with a lot of people moving to this area from California, there's bound to be people who will buy 10 or 15 or 20 acres out in the Applegate or up, in the, up toward Crater Lake or even over here on the other side of the freeway. There's a lot of little vineyards over there. Um, they're going to they're gonna buy this country property and they're going to say, well, what do, I, what do I do with it? You know, and they don't want to grow hay for horses, so they'll look into grape growing. And, and Greg Jones has actually established a consulting business in which he, people call him and ask him what grapes should they grow. Porter Lombard did the same thing for many years. He was a consultant. But, you know, Porter is old enough, Porter's about my age, or maybe even older, I don't know. Uh, but Porter came up in, in, sort of in the older school where Cabernet, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Zinfandel, that was, the, that was what you planted. Mm -hmm. But now, Greg has turned everybody in a different direction. And so, my, uh, my choice for the top two people in the uh, history of wine in Southern Oregon, it's Porter Lombard and Greg Jones. Not Southern Oregon, the Rogue Valley. I, Southern Oregon really includes the Umpqua too, which is, is a different story. Mm. So, so I, think, I think that Southern Oregon eventually will be very well known for, for whatever they're growing. You know, uh, not too long ago, in fact, around 2000, I took a trip up to Walla Walla I just wanted to go up there and see what was going on. So I went to Walla Walla, and there was not that much there. Uh, at that time, I think they told me there was 20-some wineries in Walla Walla. Well, now there's over 80 wineries in Walla Walla, and Walla Walla is well-known throughout the country for its Cabernet and its Merlot and its Syrah. It's a very well-known wine area. And, uh, oh, and you know, I'm sure you do, maybe you don't know, that some of the best uh, Cabernets from Walla Walla were grown in Oregon, not in Washington. Uh -oh. The vineyards are in Oregon, below the, see the Walla Walla River runs right through Oregon mm -hmm. on its way to, and then Washington on its way to the, uh, to the ocean. So the Milton Freewater area of uh, Oregon is, is very important. Syrah is this dynamite from that area, from Milton Freewater. And one of the best, one of the most exclusive wineries in uh, Washington uses fruit that he grows in Oregon. Of course, he doesn't want to say that. It says on the bottle, Washington wine. You know, he doesn't say mm -hmm. the wine's from Oregon, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it is. He, he says, well, he says Walla Walla, but he doesn't go on to explain that part of Walla Walla is in Oregon. Right. Yeah. So. Oh. 
So, so I think that sooner or later, and, and may, we, at this point, we might not even know what the right grape is for this area. Mm -hmm. But out of 70-some grapes that are growing here, something has got to stand out. And I guess I didn't finish my list of the, of the very best, but I, I came close with the, with the uh, Rhone varieties. Uh, and yeah, because Grenache and, and Grenache and Syrah are both Rhone varieties. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Viognier, Marsan, and Roussan are, are all, so that's five Rhone varieties right there. Right. And then throw in Tempranillo and throw in uh, some, probably some grapes will come from um, Italy. I don't think it'll be Sangiovese. Sangiovese makes decent wine here, but um, Sangiovese, you know, they tried that in California big time. They lost a lot of money on it. There's a, there was an immense vineyard up above Napa, up in the hills, uh, that was all planted in Tempranillo, or uh, Sangiovese. And they made decent wine. It was good, but it didn't even come close to Chianti. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether <clears throat> Sangiovese, that, that, whether it will stand the test of time or not. I think that there are probably places in the valley that, uh, that it might do well but we haven't found them yet. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.